What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed? What would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of Global Swedish Design and stationery brand Kiki K, and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people to dream. Before I started Kiki K, I had a dream that I could bring Swedish design to the world to create beautiful products that bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to help you dream big. I want to create a global movement to inspire 101 million dreamers to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of the world's most inspiring people, exploring the powerful impact that dreaming has had on their lives. We'll be diving deep into the power of dreaming with real insights and ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. back to another inspiring episode. In this episode, I'm talking to the ballet dancer Mary Lee. Mary Lee is the wife of Lee Shin Sing, author of Mao's Last Dancer. If you read my book, Your Dream Life Starts Here, you will have read Lee's inspiring story in there, so it might be familiar. And this is his inspiring wife. At the age of 16, she flew halfway around the world to start a life in London, studying at the Royal Ballet School. Mary's talent saw her join the London Festival Ballet and then move on to Houston Ballet, dancing under acclaimed director Ben Stevenson. Here she met Chinese dancer Li Xinxing. Their chemistry ignited the stage and offstage the two fell in love, becoming darlings of the ballet world. When their first daughter, Sophie, was born, their lives were complete. On her first birthday, they started to notice Sophie wasn't as responsive to noises as she should have been. Their fears were confirmed when at 18 months of age, Sophie was pronounced profoundly deaf. She would never hear the music her parents performed to, would never learn Mandarin to communicate with her beloved grandparents or hear her parents speak to her. It was unlikely Mary and Lee would ever hear their daughter's voice. After being told bluntly by a specialist, if you both want to continue your careers, then Sophie will probably never learn to speak. Mary then stepped out of the spotlight to focus on her daughter, determined that one day the two of them would have a conversation together. While Mary grieved for her daughter and for the career she put aside, her sole goal in life was for Sophie to have her own voice. Mary and Sophie spent years working together to give Sophie a voice. Through hearing aids, hours upon hours of daily speech therapy and fighting for a cochlear implant, all their efforts paid off when a sweet little voice sang along to rain, rain, go away for the first time. It took further years and specialist schools, but Mary achieved her goal. She and Sophie were able to have a verbal conversation together. 
This is such an inspiring story as we get to hear what it takes to become a world-class ballerina on a world-class stage. The hard work and the daily ground that is necessary to make it, the power of support and also how you take a decision not to follow through with your dream and so much more. I absolutely loved this chat with Mary. And after the interview, which I did in person, I got to see some of the ballerinas that Mary is coaching. Oh my, so inspiring and so good. So let's get right into it. Hi, Mary, and welcome to my podcast. Hi, lovely to meet you. I'm so excited to have you as part of the show. Before we get started, I always ask the same question to all my guests, and that is, did you have a dream as a child, something you wanted to do or wanted to become? Not really. You know, I was surrounded by so much love and contentment and opportunity in my family. I sort of thought that was what it was all about. But when I did do my first ballet class, there's no question that this is where I wanted to be. I didn't know where that would end up. I had no idea, but I knew that I would never leave the studio. And in fact, I, I sort of never really have, although I was forced to at one point. So I just knew that was my home and it was the only place I wanted to be. Yeah. Even though I had all that excitement and fun at home, at eight, I knew, which is kind of mature thinking, really. I was yeah. like, this is it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So for those of you who haven't read your book, who have followers all around the world, so uh, not everyone might have heard your story. So tell us a little bit about your journey from where it started. And Yeah. So I grew up in Rockhampton. I was one of eight children, the eldest girl. Very happy, lovely family, gorgeous mum. She had eight children under the age of 33 and we thought that she'd just go up to the hospital every year and just bring another baby home. So there was a lot of chaos and love in our house and I was a very, very energetic, wild child. And one of mum's friends happened to say that her beautiful little daughter wanted to go to ballet and would I accompany her? And my mother was like, please. And so off I went and I still remember the very first ballet class. And that young friend who's now principal of a school in Melbourne said she remembers that teacher on that first day. Something happened with her even looking at me. You know, I grew up on a trampoline and I don't know if a trampoline made me jump or I just had that in my physicality that I could jump in the air. My father was state champion high jumper, so maybe it's genetics too. And this teacher happened to be incredible and just knew her stuff. I mean, that was just luck. That, and you know, crossovers in your life happen and, and she was it for me. So she was my teacher. And so I started quite late, really, but she just propelled me forward and she would, you know, call me the wild woman from Borneo and all kinds of things would make me so mad. So I wasn't the typical pale-faced rose petal ballerina. I was very strong and boisterous and energetic and wild and careless, she used to say. But I just loved it so I could take anything. And then she suggested at 14 to my parents to save some money and that I should go to the Royal Ballet School if I got in. And my parents talked to me and, you know, and I thought that was the best idea because the Royal Ballet was the pin. I didn't know where that was going to end, but I did know of the Royal Ballet. And so she really thought, she sort of said to my parents, if she goes and sees what is out there, she will learn so much. 
And she was very intuitive, the teacher, because she didn't advise everybody to go. So mum and dad took me over, I was 16. I couldn't wait for them to leave. And that was the beginning of my life. And I had um, amazing teachers like Julia Farron, Pamela May, they were famous ballerinas in the Royal Ballets. They, they were my teachers. And they loved this sort of wild colonial. And so I definitely knew that I wasn't going to get into the Royal Ballet because I was not the English Rose. And that's sort of what it was. Although I think it's changed a lot now as time's gone on because they need, ballerinas need so much strength and resilience. And another little girl said, I'm auditioning for Festival Ballet. And I said, oh, what's that? And she said, oh, it's a company. I said, oh, well, I'm going as well. So I obviously had street smarts. So I went with her and I didn't get a position then. So that was a bit sad. But a few, even maybe a month later in the January, I got a call from this wonderful woman who was a ballet mistress for London Festival Ballet. And she said, we'd like you to come in to do class. We'd like to see you again, you know, for a possible position. So I was like, oh, yes. And I went in and that class, I was sitting in the studio and this man walked across in the big fur hat and coat and boots and everything. And it was Rudolf Nureyev. He was doing a very famous Romeo and Juliet, brand new, and they needed more dancers. So I got the job. And that was history because Rudolf worked for us for the next 10 years. And so I thought that standard that Rudolf set was everywhere but it was very special. And so all of us that were in that 10 year period from 75, cause he was with us in the studio and then he took us to Paris and the Met, um, Australia and yeah. So it was amazing and I had visa issues and those are the days, you know, my flatmate said, go to Paris with my brother, you know, and then you can come back and go, you're working in a bar, my stamp. So, bit different now, perhaps. <laughs> well, I think you can work there now if you're under, but you couldn't work there unless you had English relatives. Yeah. And Rudolph, we were doing a tour of Australia with Romeo and Juliet, and my father helped get the exit visa. And then I got promoted later, and so then the company took over it because, you know, you have a sort of special status. So that was it. And I, I just happened to have, I mean, I was drawn to them as well, like the ballet mistress, Betty Anderton, she was a ballerina in Sadler's Wells. And so I had her for seven years. So, and then extraordinary ballerinas to look at, you know, Evdokimova and Terabust and Makarova. I mean, it was just all on a plate. Yeah. And that's the only thing I did. It was my life. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you met Lee, like through that. And obviously, because that turned your life because then you had Sophie, etc. Yeah. So yeah. There was a quite famous English choreographer and he came and did um, big works like Cinderella and Four Last Songs and uh, Three Preludes, which is a, an amazing part of day that every ballerina wants to do in the world. And he loved my talent and I loved him. He just was something else. It was something not about the steps. It was about the music and interpretation and it just shifted my whole thinking because I loved the drama and everything. So I became very close to him and he was running the Houston Ballet in Houston and Lee was a dancer there. And Houston Ballet was coming to London. Ben was always talking up me to the dancers in Houston Ballet and they just thought that's very strange because he usually doesn't like anyone outside of his own company. So everyone was quite intrigued. And when they came to London, they came and saw us perform and then I went and saw 
leap of form, but I kind of wanted to go incognito because I was principal dancer and anyone would have known that I could have been reported on and then I probably would have been in, you know, quite big trouble really. So I went and saw the company and thought that was great. And then, you know, I was 27 at the time and I think he was about, so he'd sort of helped produce me as well. So he's more interested in 17 and 18 year olds. And I was like, I don't want to hang around for this because I think I'm only beginning. This is the time, which I think is what people have come to now because there was a whole bit of a stint with him on sort of baby ballerinas, which all crashed and burned actually. And I didn't sort of grow up with that. I grew up with Rudolph and all these wonderful older ballerinas. And Ben had had that kind of attitude as well. So I decided that I'd just leave London and Ben had a principal contract and he wanted me and off I went. And then Lee was my partner. So, you know, how things happen is just crazy, really. Moments in your life, you can't want them or anything. They just happen, don't they? And he was the most beautiful partner. So we were like, let's not get involved because it's hard to find a great dance partner where there's such simpatico, you know, it's just not easy. And I only had two or three in my career that I really loved. Lee was number one. Kelvin Coe, who was a principal dancer in the Australian Ballet, I just loved him. And I did some Giselles with him in Australia. It was amazing. But I hadn't danced. That was just in a guest performance. And then I had a couple of others, but none like those two. You know, really, really special. And I loved Ben's choreography. It was very romantic and had a lot of emphasis on musicality and storytelling. And I mean, it was a big change to go from London to Houston. It was terrible shock. And, I, you know, at times I thought, what have I done? Yeah. When you say terrible, what was the difference? Well, just, you know, I'd been used to performing at the London Coliseum in St Martin's Lane and sort of going not all around the world but all over England and beautiful traditional theatres and having a lot more performances. And then we went, I went to Houston and we were doing one-night stands around, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, college town because I think it was a, an American grant. I can't remember what it was for us to perform Armadillo, Orange, Texas, all these places all over, Arizona, Phoenix. I did Swan Lake in Phoenix. I remember that because the heat, which was when I was actually, I'd done Swan Lake and later found out I was pregnant with Sophie. Very early stages, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was really the Midwest. And we went on buses, went into the college towns, performed and stayed the night and was on the bus the next day to the next one. So we went on sort of eight-week tours around England. We were a touring company and in Houston it was not really a big touring company so that, you know, I actually got a sort of stable life in a way because we were always touring in England. So we were on a train or a bus or someone out of London. Yeah, so that was hard to adjust to sort of living. I'd have a weekend. I was like, what? (laughs) But it was amazing, actually. And we went to Swan Lake and the city centre in New York as soon as we got there. We went to the Kennedy Centre every year. I did everything there, Swan Lake. And I'd gone to Washington with Rudolph. But in hindsight, it all goes very fast. And you don't have time to reflect because you're just busy learning the next piece and wanting the next opportunity, you know, sort of desperate. And it was a lot of performing. And then I was pregnant with Sophie, which was, you know, amazing and sort of scary at the same time because Lee and I had talked about wanting children, but we hadn't really, which is probably the best way it should be really because it's so magical. 
And Ben was marvellous. There was no way, you know, I was going to lose my position or anything because in those days when you were pregnant in the dance world, you know, that was it. You were gone. So that was wonderful with Ben. He just held my position. And um, that was all great until we'd done a performance at the Opera House in Sydney together, which was beautiful. My family, we brought Sophie out here. Everyone had come to see. We did a gala in Queensland. And Lee noticed that other children were startled when a balloon popped and she didn't move. And we sort of had inklings because her speech wasn't coming. So when we came back to America, we had her pushed to have a hearing test and we found out she was profoundly deaf, which was shocking. And I took a couple of days. We had to go to Canada to process all of that. And then, you know, I said to Lee, I I can't leave her. Who's going to talk for her? How's she going to survive in the world? without me so I went back and saw Ben and said I'm going to give up my career and I had the visions of Helen Keller you know that was the only history in my mind and I just thought I wanted to speak so I made that decision and I knew I had to move fast So they said I was the fastest person ever to get hearing aids and get everything going because I realized she was 18 months so we'd lost so much time. Yeah. And that was just really, really difficult. Yeah. And as time went on, I was like, okay, how, how can she go to kindergarten without me? And that's when I researched the implant, which wasn't really highly thought of at the time, no. which definitely wasn't. Well, they weren't even really implanting children. You had to sort of fight for it. So I fought for her to have one. And after a couple of weeks of being switched on, I realised she could hear. I don't know what she was hearing, but I just, I felt such relief because she could hear. So at some point, what was going in was going to come out. It was a very difficult journey because she was four at the time and she was a highly intelligent child. So she knew that there were demands on her and she was, you know, fine in the family and with me and with Thomas and friends. But I just, I watched her every word I watched her listen, I watched her play. So it was very painful. It was very difficult for me to write the book because I just didn't want to go back there. I find that very hard talking about any of that. And what made you do the book? My daughter. Because it was very painful for a lot of her friends and she had a very painful journey through her 20s because that was you know, true independence. And the other day she said to me, because I pushed for her to go to college because she couldn't live on her own and she didn't have sign then. And she said, Mum, I'm so glad you did that. So that was hard as well. You know, sitting in big halls, sitting in the dinners and trying to, yeah, hear really, because background noise and all of that's still quite problematic. So she just said it will help so many people and it's now sold 30,000 copies and I've just had a letter written from a woman in South Africa has three children her middle child was deaf and she also she's 72 and she taught her daughter to speak her daughter doesn't speak now she's sign and she's got a signing boyfriend she said the mother said I've learned to sign at 72 and so she said now I have a relationship with my son-in-law so she said I want to come and meet you when I come to Australia during COVID they couldn't You know, so I've had a lot of people write. I've kept the letters about common stories. Another beautiful woman in Tasmania as well. She was a teacher and she went through the same process because there wasn't a lot of option 
on signing either. No. You know, there's no great signing school. You know, there's intermittent where you sort of hand your child over, which is fine if your whole family signs, but mine was Chinese and my other family. So that's what I felt, that sort of segregation was very difficult for me to choose because my first language was English and that would be her first language towards her family. Otherwise I would have to and then I would learn, but I would be her interpreter. So that's how I figured it. And I think even though it was hard for her and for me, it was the right choice because now she just has both and she walks that line. And now the implants change so much. A lot of people are speaking and signing so they don't have that conflict because the implant's finer and they can have double implants and lots of like deaf children that only have signing parents are also getting implanted because they want them to have that opportunity. So it's it's fascinating, you yeah. know, and there's nothing really written. Like I never had a book. Yeah. And we didn't have the internet. No. So we had nothing. So I just only had my gift to find people that were great teachers. Yeah. And that's what I did. I used to fly from Houston to Dallas with Sophie for a speech therapy lesson to this woman called Linda Daniels, who was a genius. And she's the one that said, it works, Mary. I've seen a child here. I think I had a gift to find people and shut everyone else out and just go with my instincts. And I think that comes from um, having a lot of freedom and being in a lovely home. And I think instincts has, has served Lee and I both very well. I mean, that was the reason we took the job in Queensland. Yeah. And that was now nine years ago. Yeah. So we're just like, do we or don't we? And I think that was the right choice. Yeah. Yeah. So to be back in the arts, I mean, I feel it's just my home. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you had a big dream and your career and loving that and then having to take that really difficult choice. For anyone listening who might be having that how did you go through that like in terms of being so focused on your passion and your art and then but having having Mm. Sophie how did you make that decision because it wouldn't have been an easy one or was it perhaps no again instinct I think I thought about at the end of the day at the end of my life what could I live with yeah an extended career or a daughter that could communicate yeah And so it was that sort of long-term thinking. So in the end, you know, for her to be able to fit in the world and be independent, and she's just such an amazing, beautiful woman. She's just my favourite person to speak to in the world. Yeah, yeah. And if I don't speak to her, and now I sign a little bit, so we'll go for coffee. I mean, I'm not good, but she says I'm a natural (laughs) because, um, you know, we do so much in dance with, signing and I did always offer that to her but she said no early on so it wasn't until she was independent we were living up here actually that she learned and I'm so glad she did yeah yeah Yeah. for anyone who has children with disabilities or difficulties you went with your instinct but not everyone has that especially if you don't have the support or the family around you like what kind of advice would you give to people like that yeah I don't know that there's any right path really I wouldn't suggest that because of the ballet I think I had that discipline yeah and it's it's just everything's a daily grind yeah 
and I often didn't give myself a break and I think sometimes I should have but I was used to the daily grind and that's what it takes. Just yeah. I got up every and put those hearing aids on and I talked 24-7 about nothing but making sure she heard it. Yeah. I never took my ears off her and that's really exhausting but, you know, Lee was an amazing support because that can also crumble relationships yeah. and he has a wonderful relationship with his daughter because they're so alike. Yeah. They send me mad together. But he was wonderful and he was like, Mary, you can be my coach. So, you know, not a lot of men are good like that. They let their wives go, no, no, do it this way or that. So he was really, he really, he missed me in the studio. It was like a marriage in the studio. But he really understood what I'd given up. So because I had him knowing that and then him sharing and making me a part of his life, that's what stopped me from ever getting bitter or, I mean, I, I did get depressed, but I mean, I just had to get up yeah. and get through it. Yeah. And I tell Sophie, I just talk about it. I just go, you know, I'm sad today. Mummy's sad. Yeah. So she had to live through it too. Yeah. And our relationship is very unique yeah. because of that. It's very strange. Yeah. And so when, when we had um, a break with the signing, it was for me, it was like a divorce. I was so sad. And it wasn't that I needed her to accept my life. I just um, wanted our relationship. And Lee was very good about helping heal that. And then, yeah, unfortunately for Sophie, she had to be reimplanted two years ago and she had a terrible, terrible time because no one knew what was wrong until they took it out. And that was just very traumatic. That was like going through that again. Mm. And she's come through that now. So it's a year and a half, 18 months or nearly two years since she had the implant, and she can barely remember because it was new hearing. Yeah. So without our support and love, and she's such a hard worker, she didn't think she'd be able to work again. Mm. And that's a 30-year-old. So her life just stopped. Mm. And she's like, why me again? But I say to us, I said to the other day, you know, you having got through that very, very difficult period, you're in a higher plane than the rest of us because you actually did make it through. You dragged yourself through yeah. that pain and that sadness. And you're like independent and, you know, you can do that. You can do anything. And she can look back like that too. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 Incredibly inspiring. Mm. So for anyone who's listening who wants to be a ballerina, what's your top tips? Hard work. Yeah. Yeah. It is a daily grind. And it's not only that, it's quite competitive yeah. too, but they're all your mates. And then injury comes in. So you could be done all this work to do with the show and then suddenly your back goes or sprain an ankle or something and then you lose it. And it's like, oh my God. And it's a very rewarding when you've done a show, but you're sort of only as good as your last show. So there's a lot of insecurity and you don't always get to have a career like mine and then actually able to coach ballerinas. It's a very specialized craft because you can't really do it unless you've done it. So I'm so lucky to be in it, but I think that's my passion as well. And if I hadn't have stayed in it, there's no way I could do this job now. So I helped Lee and then I coached a few other dancers and then I was hired by the Australian Ballet. So I taught class 
every time they were in Melbourne because that's another skill. If you're a ballerina, it doesn't mean you can do be in charge of 60 people in a room and get things done in an hour and a half yeah. and get them warm for the day and understand. So that was really great training and I had that in my 40s. And I didn't have to work full time because they went to Sydney all the time. So it sort of worked as the children were at school because it was in school hours. So I was very grateful for the Australian Ballet for doing that. Yeah. And I love analysis. I mean, I love going into the heads of the ballerinas because I've just coached five of them for Sibian Beauty. And I just said to them, I ban nerves. We're starting this now and you're going to practice telling yourself before you run down the stairs that you are not nervous and it's your birthday party. And I said, that's a discipline. It has to start now. And so when that music came on, they were like, yep, she said, no nerves. So they kept a lid on it because I've seen so many people like ruin it because they've done all the work and they come out and they're like, can't even see they're so nervous because it's hard. So I know all those pitfalls. Yeah. How about self-doubt? Because I have no doubt within your area. It's constant. Yeah. It's constant. And how do we deal with that? Well, I deal with it by giving them ways and means of feeling great because it's a feeling profession. Yeah. So I don't get into any of stuff. I just, because technically I know how to make people feel from the inside out. Yeah. And so if a teacher's right, they'll walk into a room and they'll already feel, or if they're like that, the teacher's like that, the communication's like that, their body's already responded. So you're not going to get anything out of them. So I'm very warm and they're already on my page when they walk in the door. Yeah. Because that is a physicality. Yeah. My body language before they even start. Yeah. And I'm quite gifted at that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. They've got T-shirts with all the things that I've said (laughs) over the years. And I go, that's a new one. They write them at the end of the year. (laughs) Because if you told someone what I said, they go, what is she talking about? Yeah. You know, but my dancers know what I'm talking about. I can say one word and their body will just switch because I've had them for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. And confidence, I would never let them go on without being confident. Wow. Never. That's my number one aim. And they're all different. Yeah. You know, they've got different headspace issues. Yeah. So if they come in feeling really insecure, do you feel like you can change them or do you feel Yeah, like oh no, they they all have different vulnerabilities, but I yeah. just work on each of them differently. Yeah. Yeah. So even if a ballerina who is might be listening today feeling that they're not as strong as you, you feel that they can change. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With the right people in front yeah. of them. Yeah. You know. And also you don't always get the like the perfect teacher or the one you want. And how about the process of um, writing a book? It was absolutely horrific. But Sophie was getting through her after she'd been implanted and she had a bit of a breakdown. There was nothing she could do, just get used to her hearing. And she had to live with us because she couldn't live independently. She made me get up every morning and she'd walk in the bedroom and go, coffee. She'd, have the, she'd just go, right. I go, no. I was like, oh, right, what? She said, it doesn't matter. Write anything. Yeah. And so because she was sort of stuck, you know, getting adjusting to her hearing, she couldn't work, and I would do anything for her. Yeah. And then so I just wrote freehand about 460,000 words in the end, and she typed it all up. So she did everything. She did all the typing, all the thing, and she sent it off to the editor. She'd just go, next, doesn't matter, Mum. So it was all confused and all, and then sometimes she'd put it in order. I'd go to London, then I'd remember another story and put it all in. 
So that was huge, but it actually helped her recover as well. And and she always said, mum, you don't have to publish it. So I was like, yes. (laughs) You know, because it's hard. And then you have to dig really deep and people were like, you were so honest. But I mean, once you write it, you have to write what happened. So I had an amazing editor and Lee was quite mean as well. Why aren't you writing? (laughs) The two of them, it was horrific. And then we had COVID. So the last editing was the happiest moment of my life. I had Lee opposite me and Sophie and myself, and we were doing the last edit. Everyone was correcting, and there my deaf daughter was correcting commas and before it went off to the editor, and that was just, I mean, I just never would have thought of that. That was the thing about profound deafness. There was no end. There were no answers. Yeah. Because it depended what the child was like, you know. There's so many other issues as well with language. I mean, people have language issues that aren't deaf, you know, so it's very complicated. Yeah. Well, you have such an amazing story and so inspiring. So for anyone who is thinking about their dream life, whatever that is, it might not be dancing, it might be something else, what kind of advice would you have to someone who's considering going for their dream life? I think go for it. Definitely go for it. And, you know, communicate also your dreams or what are out loud too. I mean, why not share and get other people on your, I'm a really good sharer. I mean, maybe that's being one of eight, but I always felt that I was just never quite alone with a teacher, with friends, with my mother, with Lee's parents, even though they didn't speak English, you know, because work or a dream is never just about you alone, is it? Mm -hmm. And if I think about that, that's helped me a lot. And you don't know that, A small dream is not a bigger dream. So you just really don't know unless you try and give it your best shot. Yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. I think you are living your dream life now. What kind of morning routine do you have if you have any? Are you very disciplined with that as well? Well, I usually teach class and I do Pilates before class on a Tuesday. So Monday and Tuesday I taught. Wednesday I didn't, but then I rehearsed from 11.30 till 6.00. And sometimes I do a ballet class, but my hips are getting a bit sore. So, it's, you know, it's not as pleasurable as it should be, yeah. particularly my right hip. So that's a bit of a problem. But, yeah, I'll just go and do a bar here, yeah. which is my favourite thing to do, yeah. you know, when I don't have a sore hip. Yeah. So I've got lots of opportunities to do different. I don't like to do the same thing. Yeah. drives me mad. And then I have music all day. So I just think, oh, God, luckiest person in the world. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. And um, I'm a... Avid reader, do you have any favourite book? And if yes, why, apart from your own? Well, so many biographies, so many books. I mean, I I don't really have a favourite because there's so many. But when I was a dancer in London and when we travelled, I bought an author in each area. So when we were in New York, I read Bonfire of the Vanities. When I was in Texas, I did Lonesome Dove, Larry Mercury. When we were in France, I, you know, did some friends, some Mont de Beauvoir, and I read a lot of English writers, Middle March, all of that, Tess of the Dirt, you know, so I just, yeah. and I do love reading any sort of inspirational stories and I've read so many, yeah. so I can't really pick one to yeah. mind. But, no, but yeah. that's a great way of doing it. Yeah. The last question is, knowing what you know now, mm-hmm. what would you tell yourself in your late teens? No, because in my teens, I was quite happy with myself. And I think that 
that was actually quite helpful. Like a, a lot of people have a heavy pressure on, I must get to this goal, I must get to that. And I kind of didn't realize any of that until my 20s, but it was in my late 20s. I could have been a little bit softer on myself, yeah. but I wasn't that hard on myself in my teens. So I had a quite a fun life as well as working hard. And I actually think that brought a broader version of myself into my 20s when I became very serious. And so I think you can get a little bit serious too soon as well. And then your dreams can sort of crash very, I just went quite slowly and then fast. You know, I was like, oh, I can do that. I can do that. But before that, I was just sort of taking it all in. And you need to. Yeah. You need to be a very broad person. Great. This has been so inspiring. Thank you so much for sharing. And anyone listening, I'll add all the links to your book and thank everything. You. And so no, thank you. And thank you for all that you are doing to inspiring the dancers of the world, but also for people with their disabilities and hard times. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Oh, I just love this conversation. What a story of hard work, the daily ground that is required, which of course applies to all dreams. I also love the reminder of the power of support and also what she said, in hindsight, it all goes very fast. There are long days and there are hard days, but when you look back, the period went so fast. I can so relate to that. That is why I often say life is short and that is why I want everyone to remember that so you all focus on your dream life, whatever that is for you. If you are inspired and want to work on your dream life, I would love to support you through your dream life starts here digital course that is opening soon at the time of recording. Just go to your dream life starts here to register to find out more. And if you want to hear more what's happening in my world, sign up to my dream life newsletter that comes out once a week. I'll add a link to it in the show notes. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Christina Kikike. Until next week, dream big.